Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to another installment of uh, the John Serma and Frank Davis podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the Atlantic hurricane season because John wrote one heck of a blog, uh, working with a couple of associates, one from our Dallas office, Jeff Leslie, and one from our San Antonio office, uh, Brandon Stray. Today, John is uh, on the line with us, and we're going to be talking uh, about his interpretations of uh, OSHA's Hurricane E-Matrix that just came out here in June. And the timing is good because the Atlantic hurricane season runs from June 1st to November 30th of each year. And uh, John lives right down there on the coast where hurricanes tend to find their way into Texas. Morning, John. Morning, Frank. Happy to be back. The uh, OSHA Hurricane E-Matrix came out. You picked up on it right away. I got excited with the whole lumberjacking standard and really got involved with it because of my time up in the, the woods in Colorado. And and I know you were keenly interested in OSHA's uh, perspective on hurricanes, being that you're down there in the, uh, the so-called uh, Hurricane Alley. Yeah, well, you know, having lived through... Rita and Ike and Harvey and a bunch of little ones in the interim and having lost a house in one of those hurricanes uh, and uh, uh, having a house flooded out um, in another one of those hurricanes. Hurricane season has a lot of impact on us here. And, you know, it's something that's, and I don't want to say near and dear to my heart because certainly I don't enjoy it, but, it, you know, knowing what OSHA is doing relative to recovery efforts afterwards is important. You know, a lot of our clients are deeply involved in that. A lot of our clients have facilities along the Gulf Coast. And, um, you know, being in Texas, you know, folks don't understand this, but the only state that's hit more by hurricanes than Texas is Florida. So uh, with as much coastline as we have, we see a lot of that activity. And it's something that's really, you know, pretty prevalent in our lives here. And it's six months of the year that, you know, we kind of, you know, stay closely tuned to the weather and um, paying attention to what's out in the Gulf. And, and you know, in this case, we're paying attention to what OSHA is looking at relative to responding to hurricanes after they've made landfall. And that's the key, right? This isn't about preparation for a hurricane that OSHA has laid out in their E-matrix. This is about recovery and expectations on the steps employers should take once a hurricane makes landfall and and I guess that crisis is over, and then the cleanup and rescue uh, during that phase. That's what the hurricane matrix focuses on. And do I understand that correctly? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. There is a little bit about you know kind of preparation for going into the recovery mode, but it, it's not about you know what you should do to button down prior to a storm making landfall. It, it's all about what happens after landfall, and you know the contractors are coming in companies are going back to work and, and, you know, blue robes are being erected. For those that don't live in hurricane country, blue robes are just blue tarps that they put over 
damaged roofs to prevent water from infiltrating into the home. Um, you know, but it's all about that stage of the game. You know, hurricanes long gone. It's it's you know somewhere up in Wisconsin, giving them a rain event, and and, and you know the, the lights are starting to come back on where the hurricane hit. So historically, OSHA has been compliance assistant focused, where they've gone down and more or less been consultants in how to engage in cleanup efforts and repair efforts in compliance with the act. Uh, this new e-matrix and, um, and the communications from OSHA uh, represent a shift in that approach to where it's going to be more enforcement focused. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a background about the distinction there, John? Sure, Frank. Traditionally, after a hurricane or other natural disaster, OSHA sends folks in from that particular area, that region. Um, sometimes if it's a, on a large enough scale, it'll be folks coming in nationally and, and you know, basically coming in and working with contractors and others that are in the recovery mode and identifying things that, you know, may be non-compliant or, you know, could be done in a safer way and encouraging the employers to do things either in a compliant way or, you know, in a safer way. The hurricane e-matrix, um, also referred to on the OSHA website as the hurricane e-tool, seems to be suggesting that OSHA is going to take an approach that's more oriented towards enforcement, more oriented towards basically citing employers as opposed to working with employers to get them to, to be more compliant. It, it, it appears that there's the potential at least for employers to be you know, looking at an OSHA that's now looking at writing citations as opposed to being there in, in a purely, you know, let's get this work done quickly and safely. So that's going to trigger our usual assessment, our usual planning before we begin any work, right? Uh, and our usual planning would be, one, we do a hazard assessment, uh, and then we go through the matrix about addressing the hazard. Uh, we either try to eliminate the hazard, which is tough in post-hurricane recovery. Now we try to engineer out the hazard, same issue. Um, you have administrative controls, and then when all else fails, you go to personal protective equipment. The matrix does contain a lot of information um, about hazard-specific recommendations. And speaking to some of those, it specifically identifies asbestos. It identifies lead, uh, unknown chemicals. John, when we're in the process of conducting a hazard assessment for asbestos, lead, discovery of unknown chemicals post-hurricane, how in the heck do we go about doing that? Going back to, to something that you mentioned, you know, with the job hazard analysis or, or JHAs or the job safety analysis, JSAs, you know, OSHA did as part of this e-matrix include these activity sheets. And these activity sheets, I think, are useful both in the hurricane recovery mode, but I think they're also something that employers in non-hurricane recovery mode could be looking at in terms of doing their own JSAs or JHAs. So talk a little, a little more about that. How, how are those sheets laid out and how are they used? The way this is structured, there's essentially five tabs if you want to count the home tab as a tab. 
Uh, one of those is employer worker responsibilities. One of those is general recommendations. One of those is sampling and monitoring. And then one of those is a list of activity sheets. The list of activity sheets has under it a, a total of six kind of tabs with drop downs. Um, those are building assessment, restoration, and demolition, waste, debris removal, and reduction, infrastructure repair and restoration, community support and public health services, restoration of maritime infrastructure and water related activities, and operation specific sheets. Each of those has a drop down. And just using the building assessment, restoration, and demolition as a, for instance, they have roof inspection, tarping and repair, building demolition, assessment, cleanup, and repair of, of structures, removal of floodwaters from structures and initial entry into previously flooded areas, and mold remediation. When you click on those, there's a drop down. It gives you an activity description. Description, excuse me. It gives you kind of a list of things to be looking at in terms of. Um, PPE. It talks about the uh, activity sheet as a whole, you know, to the extent that they think that there should be some sampling and monitoring performed. It talks about that. And then it makes some general recommendations relative to uh, engineering controls, PPE, and the like. I mean, they really, really lay out what an employer can be incorporating as contents in their JSA or JHA. I think you're right. I think that's that's helpful. And it's always nice to have a, a little bit of a framework to reference and work off of. And and that seems like a um, an, an effective strategy to address some of these kind of ambiguous targets, right? Lead and asbestos, where it's difficult to know whether you're encountering lead or asbestos. Another area that they focused on heavily uh, on on their mid-June publication, they being OSHA, there was a real focus on heat illness safety while conducting these recovery operations. And uh, I note that you noted that in your blog, just as a reminder, and maybe it's an educational tool for folks who don't have uh, operations that are outside, what were the focuses of OSHA with regard to uh, heat illness prevention while conducting recovery operations. OSHA has traditionally kind of focused in on water, rest, and shade as being kind of the three-word motto relative to heat Ill- illness and injury prevention. Uh, with respect to the pointers that are included in the e-matrix, it appears that OSHA may be laying out kind of a, a foreshadowing of what elements might be included in the standard. And they do talk about some of the sort of traditional things, especially if you, you have any familiarity with the California OSHA heat injury and illness prevention program. But, you know, it, it's the sort of, you know, allow folks to acclimatize or acclimate to the, the conditions, reducing the amount of physical exertion, uh, scheduling work for cooler parts of the day. They go through a whole list of other alternatives relative to allowing folks the ability to cool, taking frequent rest or water breaks in, in shaded or air-conditioned areas. One thing that you and I spoke about before we recorded this podcast was that they, for the first time ever that I've seen in such a standard, they've actually included a recommendation relative to a limitation on the amount of fluids that employees consume. Um, in this case, they're recommending no more than a quart and a half per hour for folks who are working in hot and humid conditions and, and limiting 
overall consumption and no more than 12 quarts per hour. Now, 12 quarts per hour, let's put this in. 12, 12 quarts in a 24-hour period, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, 12 quarts. That's three gallons of, of fluid. There were a couple of things that I, I did think was a little bit interesting, and, and that was, you know, they're really kind of pushing this concept of, you know, whether it's air-conditioned areas, air-conditioned equipment, or, or you know, use of cooling devices like cooling vests or, or suits that, that circulate water ice packs um, through them to, to keep employees cool. There, there's a heavy focus on, you know, what characterizes as kind of mechanically cooling folks. And, and unfortunately, you know, for anybody who's been in, in that environment afterwards, you know, people are throwing every resource they have at it. And a lot of the resources that they have are old. A lot of the resources that they have are not air conditioned. They're open cab or, or open to that environment. And, um, you know, it, it, it just, it's hot and miserable. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think that there's a little bit of an unrealistic setting of expectations here or, or an unrealistic set of expectations in light of what hurricane recovery really looks like. I like your explanation. That's really helpful, John. I, I know that part of the activity sheets and, and part of the overall analysis, including um, including the expectations about how to address uh, heat illness, there's a training component to all of this. Uh, what kind of help does the E-Matrix give with regard to the to training employees uh, on on recovery efforts such as these? Well, they don't give what I'd characterize as kind of real good tips. I mean, to me, you know, when you're giving somebody tips, it, it's helpful pointers. And, and what the E-Matrix really does isn't so much unhelpful pointers, but it's really more, you know, kind of things that you should do as an employer relative to your employees and making sure that they're trained. And, and, and they really want those employees to have job-specific training for folks doing the work. And that's all wonderful, but, you know, the reality is, is, is a lot of the folks that come in and do the recovery work, I mean, they're just throwing bodies at this work. Unfortunately, because a lot of this stuff is contracted through the federal government, i.e. FEMA, you know, FEMA contracts to contractor one, contractor one contracts to contractor two. And by the time you get to the persons that are actually doing the work, they're working for like contractor 14. And, you know, the margins are slim and, you know, they don't have a high level of sophistication. They have zero safety program. They have zero understanding of what their obligations are. And, and now you're going to tell them to slow down and provide employees with job specific training. Um, I think as a practical matter, OSHA's advice relative to the training component probably isn't going to be followed by very many. Um, it may be more aspirational than actually something that's accomplished. You know, I would like to think that everybody gets the training that they need, but, you know, if you're just toting logs or, or limbs or what have you, you know, a lot of those lower tier employers aren't going to think that you need a lot of training. Uh, let me uh, do a little more guided focus because uh, OSHA's E-Matrix, I know, does reference um, spe some specific areas that might not be um, part of somebody's general work. For instance, if uh, uh, they, they do warehousing, maybe uh, they've got their employees in there to help on a recovery effort. 
uh, where they're having to use uh, equipment, different types of equipment than what they're used to using. And that may involve uh, or, or may, may cause an employer to need to evaluate uh, whether uh, they've got equipment that when it needs to be serviced or, or unjammed, you may have to have um, lockout tagout procedures. If, it's, uh, if the equipment is uh, operating um, uh, over 85 decibels uh, um, on an average of, of an eight-hour period, then it may require the adoption of a hearing conservation program. Is that true, or is there an exception to things like fall protection, lockout, tagout, and noise, uh, if it's uh, part of an emergency recovery effort, such as hurricane recovery? Well, Frank, that's kind of an interesting question because that actually goes way beyond just hurricane recovery, and this relates to every you know, quote-unquote emergency situation. There are no exceptions built into the standard you know, relative to for lack of a better way to put it, you know, kind of the defense of, hey, look, it was an emergency, so we did what we could do. Now, th- there's a difference there between, you know, is it an emergency and is it something you can do because of an emergency versus feasibility, which is under the circumstances, was it feasible to do something? So take as a, for instance, the lead and asbestos testing, monitoring, you know, that's probably not feasible in a lot of these environments. You know, noise testing, noise exposure monitoring. With lead, uh, there might be no employer knowledge. Same with asbestos, right? Right, right. And And, and and so so the feasibility would be a secondary argument even. Right, right. And, and, And I mean, I think that that's one of those things where, you know, I think some of this stuff is probably, like I said, aspirational and, and not, you know, actually what the actual expectations are. But as this just got rolled out, and so we've yet to see an actual hurricane make landfall, now that this has been out, you know, we don't actually know what approach OSHA is going to take. But, um, you know, the, 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 there, there really isn't a, a significant exception because you're dealing with an emergency response, especially when you're not talking about somebody's life in jeopardy. And so you cut some corners relative to rescuing or saving them. Excuse me, if you're only talking about you know, you're, you're doing recovery on a building that's been damaged. So, um, you know, I sit up here in um, high and dry Dallas. You know, we get a little bit of rain from the hurricanes, but we usually don't get the devastating effect. What we do get is the news feed, watching people wading through through chest deep water and engaging in, in uh, these recovery activities. What type of personal hygiene and general decontamination recommendations uh, are made by OSHA and the E-Matrix? OSHA and the E-Matrix actually includes recommendations to employees relative to kind of the things that the employees should be bringing into the disaster recovery area and, um, you know, the, the types of things that they should do relative to their own personal care, their own personal clothing, et cetera. Um, in terms of you know, personal hygiene and, and general decontamination, you know, it, a lot of it is kind of consistent in the, the personal hygiene thing um, with what we saw during COVID. Um, in particular, you know, there, there's a pretty significant focus on uh, hand washing and hand hygiene. Interestingly enough, though, whereas we were hearing 20 seconds with soap and water when available, um, the E-Matrix says 10 seconds. 
you know, with respect to you know, decontaminating, whether it be clothes or tools or other equipment, uh, they're recommending, you know, kind of the same type of decontamination as we saw during COVID, a quarter cup of bleach and a gallon of water. Um, some of this is a little bit unrealistic and, and some of this is a little bit, um, I, I'm not sure, you know, that, that, that most folks would be too happy if folks were dipping their equipment or tools in a cleaning solution of water and bleach for a 10 minute period of time to decontaminate. I see a lot of, you know, folks getting upset that tools aren't being properly cared for and that tools are being destroyed. You know, electronic type tools, you know, you can't be doing that. So I'm not really sure with some of those ideas that that, that was real great. Um, but then they also talk about decontaminating PPE and other equipment that's used with known hazardous substances. So, you know, if it's some sort of uh, chemical, um, some sort of spill, you know, there's encouragement not to to walk through um, that that chemical or that spill. And, and, you know, having seen enough hurricane recovery in my lifetime, it, people end up kind of so mission focused, you know, you would think that that's doesn't need to be spoken. But, you know, I, I think folks don't understand kind of how focused people get on the work that they're doing. And they just kind of blindly walk through and do whatever they're doing. So I think that's good advice. But then, you know, you, you got the whole issue of, you know, kind of decontaminating once you do uh, step into something like that. And, and OSHA does provide some guidance relative to that as well. Some of the guidance advice does include, you know, kind of caveats for where you don't have running water, which is a lot of those areas after a hurricane. I think it's uh, interesting how much is carried on that water. Not only do you get the sewage of waste, but you get the floating anthills, I understand, of uh, of the fire ants and uh, deer ticks. And uh, and that those can be some of the greatest hazards, along with sunburn. Well, yeah, and, and, and snakes. And, I mean, you know, the hurricanes disrupt all kinds of critters. And, you know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, OSHA does have a little two-page guide about dealing with wildlife and other critters out in, out in the wilderness. And, and, you know, hurricanes do kick that stuff up and get it moving. And, you know, they're no different than we as humans are. And I know if I get you up too early, Frank, you're a little bit surly with me. So, you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's, 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 they're a little surly when they're, you know, that, that, that pile of fire ants is floating down on, on that uh, flow of water. You're more likely to catch me surly by keeping me up too late. I'm a 3.30 in the morning kind of guy these days. I don't know many people that beat that hour. I understand poisonous snakes. I was out, uh, we had a, a heavy rain here, and I've got a creek behind my house and, uh, and a running trail that goes around it. And I was out running after we had heavy rains. And for the first time ever, I saw water moxin on the trail. I haven't been able to go on that part of the trail since. Uh, I'm sure it's gone back in the water by now, but it sure, sure did upset me. And I sure didn't expect it, even though I probably should have. Uh, so I, I think that your point's well taken, John. Uh, and it, you know what? That's, that snake did seem confused, and it was floundering around. And I just hadn't seen anything like that on the trail uh, since I moved here. Uh, and I well, found we'll... a lot of that in the, right after hurricanes. Yeah, I, I did have a little encounter with a water moccasin last night. It, 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 we both ended up walking away from it unscathed, uh, maybe a little bit irritated that we ran into each other. But I mean, it's a big issue. It's a big issue. There is one piece of, of the guidance that 
is included in the E matrix. And I guess maybe because hurricane season extends, you know, throughout the entire Atlantic coast, but there's also a piece about cold stress and cold, according to CDC, NIOSH, um, and NOAA doesn't really become a threat until you get 50 degrees or colder. And, and it just, I thought it was a little bit ironic that given that most of the hurricane activity, you know, is in the, the Gulf coast or the, the, you know, Southeast coast that they would include a section about cold stress, but they do include a, a section about cold stress. And, and certainly with some of the hurricane recovery that extends, you know, if you have a, a late strike on the Gulf coast, you know, it extends through the end of the year and into the first part of the following year in terms of kind of that emergent level. I, I guess it makes sense, but I, you know, that's something that employers need to be thinking about as well with the hurricane recovery. You know, it's not all, you know, sweating to death. It, 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 it can get cold. And especially if you've got folks that are working outside and have worked outside for a significant period of time, you know, on most of the Gulf Coast, the cold kind of comes in and, and disappears really quickly. And we just don't have an opportunity to acclimate to it. So if you get one of those cold snaps in November or December, while you're still in that recovery mode, you, you need to be mindful of that as well for, for the folks that are out there doing the work. Fair observation, John. I appreciate that. Well, we're three tropical storms into our Atlantic uh, storm watch already uh, with predictions that uh, that the hurricane season might be a significant one. So I, I think your blog was timely, and I appreciate you talking us through it today, John. Well, Frank, I appreciate the kind words. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where we certainly hope to come through this hurricane season unscathed. But I think everybody that lives in the areas that are impacted by hurricanes, you know, kind of keeps a, a wary eye on things once we get into June and July and, you know, just keeps fingers crossed that nothing bad happens through the rest of the hurricane season. All right, John. Well, I uh, hope you have a good rest of your day and uh, look forward to our next one. Frank, it's been a pleasure as always. Look forward to doing this again. Take care and be well. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.